him for joining us all the way from La Mirada, Trinity Reformed Baptist Church. Brother Sam, would you come? Good evening. It is my privilege and my pleasure to be uh, teaching at this conference. Thank you very much for the invitation and the very kind hospitality and reception that everyone has given to me. Uh, I prepared a handout for you all, which I think was distributed at the doors. If you don't have it, perhaps it's in the back. It will be very useful for you uh, throughout the entire conference. I have four lessons, and I've fit the outlines of all four lessons into this handout, front and back. And I've placed within the handout also the scripture verses that I'll be referencing as I move along. So the order in which you see them, the scripture references in your handout, is the order in which they'll come up in these lessons uh, as we move forward and move along. And so I might ask you to open your Bibles to some of them. I might just read some of them to you, but you have all the references here in the handout. And as you can see, there's four lessons. Uh, You'll you'll find, if you are familiar with God Without Passions, the primer that... um, Pastor Antonio referenced, you'll find that these lessons are in many ways a distillation of of that book. That book began as six Sunday school lessons at my church, and then I put it into five chapters in that book, and now it's into four lessons for this conference. Uh, But that's, to a large degree, uh, what what my material will be for you. And I think that with a a year or so of reflection or more, I've There are certain things that I think I can emphasize differently or communicate a little bit differently to try to improve the material so it's not just reading to you from the book or something like that. It's refreshed and represented to you in these lessons. So it's going to be, as has been stated, our privilege to dedicate four lessons to the doctrine of divine impassibility during this conference. And for, for many people, if not most people, a topic like divine impassibility is something that they've, they've not even heard about. It's not a phrase or, a, or a, an idea that they're familiar with. They hear the word impassibility, and they're not even sure what that means. And that may be your experience. And if that's the case, that's very normal. That's very common. And so one of my goals and one of my desires in this conference and in this studies is not just to fill in a blank that you have or to increase the knowledge that you might have or might not have about impassibility. My desire is to help you to learn more about your God from the scriptures, the God that you worship, the God that you serve, the God that loves you. And so I'm desiring that worship will flow out of the things that we cover in all of these lessons, and not just worship, but also a greater desire to serve that God whom we worship. So glory to God in service in our own lives is really what I want, uh, with the Lord's blessing, to come from these messages or these lessons in this conference. And that is my prayer, that the Lord would help us to to do those two things, to to glorify him and to serve him. And I want to be clear that, that... my own understanding of this doctrine and the things that I will strive to teach in my lessons stands and relies so very heavily on the work of so many other people. Um, God Without Passions, a reader, is a collection of 60 authors from history who have said things about this. So I'm standing on the shoulders of those 60 authors from history, not to mention the work of men like James Dolezal, Pastor Richard Barcelos, and other men who I know in the present, not just from the past, all of whose work has contributed to my own understanding and many things that I say I've heard from them and thought, that sounds really good, that's really helpful, I want to speak like that as well. And so this is not Sam Renahan's version of impassibility, this is not thoughts and ideas that I've had about these subjects, these are things that I've learned uh, from the scriptures and from other students of the scriptures as well. And so if you're looking at that handout, I'd like to just point out to you the four lessons that we're going to cover, starting with lesson one, impassibility in scripture. 
we're going to start out with the, the, the Word of God. Does this doctrine, does it come from the Scriptures? Where do we find it in the Scriptures? And then moving on in the second lesson, I want to talk about impassibility and humanity because we need to understand our own human nature and what passions are in the context of our human nature will help us to better understand why God does not have passions. And then we'll look at impassibility and deity. If God is divine, if God is, um, if God is God, essentially, to, to boil it down, then he cannot have passions, but we need to understand who God is as, as creatures. We need to understand who God is in order to, to better uh, speak of these things. And then lastly, impassibility and reality. Where does this doctrine, where does, where does this hit us in everyday life? You know, in my, in my daily reality, in my commute and work and life at home and all these things, what does impassibility have to do with that? And so that's what impassibility and reality is all about. It's not, about, it's not as though we're not dealing with reality in the first three lessons, but rather, how does this doctrine hit us in real life and intersect with the things that we do and the things that we think and say and feel every single day? So that's, that is my goal. That is the way that I've structured these lessons. And that's what we'll be beginning this evening with lesson one, impassibility and scripture. And so that's exactly where we're going to start. Lesson one impassibility in scripture. But you'll notice at the top of your at the top of your handouts there's a definition in bold. And that's a definition of divine impassibility. It's a definition of divine impassibility which says this, divine impassibility is the doctrine that God is not acted upon and cannot be acted upon by anything either from within himself or outside of himself. And so much of what follows in these lessons is really explaining this statement and proving this statement, starting with the scriptures. But just think about the term impassibility with me for a moment before we even get into our actual outline. And you can get an idea of what it means, an idea, not a complete understanding, but an, an idea of what it means, just thinking about the word itself. We, we can't always understand the meaning of words from their roots, but sometimes it's helpful, and this is one of those cases where it is helpful. So think about the word impassable or impassibility, and you can get a, a decent idea of it. Look, think about that, that root, uh, pass, passi. And th that's really coming from Greek, which two Greek words, pathos, which is a, a noun for suffering or, or experiences, and pasco, the verb, to undergo such things, to suffer or to undergo. So pathos and pasco are these Greek words from which we get impassibility, but it doesn't come straight from Greek, it goes through Latin first. And it goes through Latin through the roots of passio and pati. Passio and pati. So words like passion come from this. Passio, passion. Also, patient, pati. A patient is someone who receives an operation. An operation is performed on a patient. You go to the doctor and you are the patient because you sit there and they are working upon you. They are, are performing some kind of medical procedure, even if it's just an examination on you. And so you, therefore, are the patient. You are undergoing that examination or that, that operation. And so when we talk about impassibility, it's someone who's not the patient, Someone who's not passive, someone who is not uh, acted upon, someone who is not act upon, acted upon by anything, either from within or without, from inside or outside. And so when we think about the word passion today, we tend to think of it as 
sort of an, an extreme loyalty or an emotion. I have a real passion for this or I have a passion for that. And that's fine. That's just the way that we speak. But we'll be, we'll be using that word in a little bit different way in these lessons as a happening. A passion is a becoming, a happening, an undergoing. It's an event where someone works on you somehow. Someone does something to you. Someone acts upon you. That is a passion. When you undergo something, when you are the patient, that is a passion. And we're going to see that the way that we understand human nature and the way that we understand the divine nature strongly impacts the way that we would think about God being impassable. But to begin, we have to go where the doctrines grow, as one of my books says. Go where the doctrines grow. And where is that? The scriptures. We begin with the Bible. So now we will indeed get into lesson one and the outline there. Because impassibility, brothers and sisters, is a doctrine that comes from the word of God. It is a doctrine that comes to us from God himself, communicated to us for us to receive and believe and obey if there are consequences of obedience. And indeed, there are. So to see it and to understand it, we have to, what I want to do is to bring together a variety of different kinds of passages, different passages in the scriptures that we, we can compare and contrast or put them all together to receive or to draw from them a method of interpreting the scriptures and God's language of himself. And so you'll see the first thing in your outline is, is three points, and these are three different kinds of passages that we come across in the scriptures relevant to the doctrine of divine impassibility. Beginning with that first group, that first point, the Bible describes God in the language of human experience and emotion. The Bible describes God in those undergoings, those happenings. It uses that kind of language to describe our God. For example, Genesis 6 Verses 6 to 7. It says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart, regret and grief. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So in this passage in Genesis 6, verses 6 and 7, God was sorry, he was grieved in his heart, and he had regrets about making man. God is being described in the language of human experience and emotion. Next passage, Deuteronomy 9, verses 7 and 8. And this is one example of many. There are many other passages like Deuteronomy 9, 7 to 8. It says this, Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. This is God described in the language of human undergoing, human experiencing, human things happening to you. In other words, passion, emotion, etc. And 1 Samuel 15, 11. I'll just read that one to you. It's just one verse. I regret, this is God speaking, I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. God says, I regret that I have made Saul king. And the last verse in this set is Jonah 3 and verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil, this is the Ninevites turning from their evil, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Other translations will say that God repented of his plan to destroy Nineveh. So if this was all the data that we had, 
if this group of texts was all the data that we had pertinent to this subject, what might we conclude? We might say, based on these passages, and there are more that we could add to this list, that God regrets, that God experiences grief in his heart, that God is sorry, that God repents with sorrow, that God can be provoked to wrath, that God can regret and change his mind, perhaps. We might conclude, essentially, that God can undergo things, or that things can happen to him, or that people can act upon him. The Israelites acted upon God and provoked him to wrath. The Ninevites acted upon God, and he relented from his judgment upon them. We might conclude, therefore, from these texts, people are acting upon God, and he is changing in response to them. But there are other passages of Scripture that we need to also look at to develop our understanding. This is where we start. We take this at, at, at face value. We, we do not in any way shy away from it. But we move on to the next pass, set of passages, the second point in that outline. The Bible, this is not us being clever, but the scriptures themselves, the very word of God, denies that those very experiences that we've just listed, it denies that those very experiences are in God. For example, in Numbers chapter 23 and verses 19 to 20. A very important passage. Numbers 23, verses 19 to 20. It says, God is not man, that he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? God is not man. We'll be coming back to these. We're sort of gathering our information now. So if I move on, it's not because I have nothing more to say about these passages. We're just sort of doing our homework, getting all the pieces as we begin to put it together. So I will keep moving on. First Samuel 15 and verse 29. It says, And also the glory of Israel, that's God, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. And Malachi 3.6, which will be the subject of Sunday's sermon, so I will refrain from extensive comment on it, but Malachi 3.6 says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I, the Lord, do not change. And lastly, James chapter 1 and verse 17. James says, every good, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. No change whatsoever, no change at all, is what James is saying there. So we looked at the first set, and we drew from it, and we said, okay, God is described as being sorry, repenting, regretting, etc. And what can we do from these passages, or what can we conclude from them? God does not change his mind. God does not have regret. God does not change in the slightest bit at all. No variation, no shadow due to change. No, no change whatsoever in God. And you know, you have to realize, if you look at the first set, there's 1 Samuel 15.11. The second set has 1 Samuel 15.29. So in the same chapter, in the same passage, You'll have God described as regretting or repenting, and and He regretted that He made that He made Saul king, and then later in that very passage it says God is not a man that He should regret. 
And so on the one hand, in the very same passage, you have God described in the language of human emotion, and then a very in the very uh, following context, excuse me, you have another statement that says, because God is not a man, those things are not happening in God. They're being described to us in that language. So we might say, well, then we have a contradiction. The first set of passages contradict. They speak against, contradict. They contradict the second set of passages. But that's not the case. Why is that not the case? Well, that, that moves us forward to the third set of verses and on into the next portion of this lesson. Look at the third set of verses. The Bible, God's word, God's revelation, describes God in a way that makes it impossible for him to undergo anything. In other words, to be passable, to undergo anything or to be acted upon. It describes God to us and the nature of God in such a way that, of course, he can't regret or repent or be sorry in his heart and all these things. It's, it, it would be contrary to who he has told us he is. And so these next set of scripture verses will help us to understand that, that when we begin to understand the divine nature, the more we see it's impossible for him to undergo, to have something, to have becoming in himself, or to have something happen to him or to be acted upon. In other words, to be passable. So think about Genesis 1-1 with me, a passage that pretty much everyone knows by heart. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why would I appeal to that passage? Well, because the creator and the creature or creation are two completely different things. In Genesis 1, we are confronted from the very first verse of the entire canon of scripture, we are confronted with a creator-creature distinction. And it, trying to understand it is like dividing by zero. It just doesn't work. You say, okay, so there wasn't time, and then there was time. There wasn't space, and then there was space. Well, what was before? It, it's, it, you divide by zero, and then it just doesn't work. And yet we are confronted with a creator and a creature. We cannot understand anything apart from time and space because that's the, we exist within time and space. We exist within those limitations. But God created everything we know as existence and creation while being distinct and separate from that creation in himself. He did not become creation. Creation is not God, etc. God and the creature, creator and the creature, are distinct. And that's why Genesis 1-1 is so important because God is described to us from Genesis 1-1 in such a way that he's not going to be subject to the very creation over whom he is master as the one who created it. That's just Genesis 1-1. <laughs> Exodus 3-14 is a very, very important passage that will come up numerous times in these lessons. Exodus 3-14. This is where God reveals what many would consider to be the fullest name that there is to describe him. And one of the ways in which we know God is by his names. How does God describe himself? What names does God use to, to, to speak of himself? And so this is God describing himself to man so we can learn about God through the way that he has described himself to us. Exodus 3.14 Then Moses said to God, beginning in the previous verse, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is his name. I am who I am. Many translations, I am that I am. I am that I am. 
And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is the most important passage of the ones that we are reading. And I want you to keep it bookmarked in your minds because, again, we're not going to unpack it right now. We're going to note it and move on. John 4, 24. Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So is God a spirit like angels are spirits? No, those are created spirits. God is creator. And so even this description of God as spirit cannot be equated with angelic or, or spiritual beings. God is different from us. He is other than us. His being is different so that we cannot just take human experience and emotion and put it on God and think that we have accurately or fully described him. Acts 14, verse 15. In this context, Paul and Barnabas, if I recall correctly, are being not accused, but people are claiming they're thinking that they're gods because of the, the wonders that they've seen them perform. They think that they're Zeus and Hermes. And how does Paul vindicate himself? How does Paul prove to them, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not who you think I am. I'm not an object worthy of divine worship. I'm not someone that you should be revering. He says, we also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And when Paul says we are of like nature, that's the ESV translation, the older translations give a more literal rendering and probably a more accurate rendering where Paul says, I am of like passions. I am of the same passions as you. Homoeopathes. Homoeo, the same, like homogeneity. And pathes, the same undergoings, the same experiences, the same sufferings. Paul is telling the people, the Greeks, I am subject to all of the things that you are subject to, to to all the things to which you are also subject in terms of experience and um, power and dominance. So why are you worshiping me? I'm just like you. Which could be translated as I'm of like nature, but it loses a lot of its richness, you see. And so uh, James Dolezal has very helpful comments on this passage that I've appreciated very much. He, he says that Paul's point is who, the one that you ought to worship is one who is not of like nature with you, one who is not subject to those very things, uh, who is not subject to pathes, who is not subject to, to suffering. And pathes also includes physical harm. Paul's saying, listen, you could hurt me right now, you could kill me right now, I'm just like you, but you should worship the one who cannot be killed, the one who cannot be acted upon, who cannot be overpowered, the one who is omnipotent and impassable. And so Paul is appealing to his nature as opposed to what true divine nature is like. So now that we've looked at these three sets of verses, these three sets of passages, we start out with ones that plainly and clearly describe God in the language of human experience and emotion, very clearly. And then we come to passages that explicitly, just as plainly, say those things are not happening in God, as though God is undergoing these things. And then we have another set of passages where God's being and nature are described to us in such a way that, uh, of course, he could not undergo those things. God's creator. He's not a creature, etc. And so these three sets of scriptures are very important. And if we reconcile them all together, we see that they're not contradictory. It's just God speaking to us in language that we can actually understand. Because if he described himself in language that corresponded to his majesty and infinity, 
We would never, it would, it would go over our heads. We could never understand that. When, when people in the scriptures are confronted with a manifestation of the glory of God, not the actual glory of God, when they're confronted with a manifestation, they all think they're about to die. They all think they're about to die. This is it. This is the end. They fall down like dead or they put their faces to the ground and they worship because they're being confronted with something so far beyond them, they do not know what to do other than fall down. And so also, if God spoke to us in the fullness of his majesty and perfection, would we say, yes, that's what I thought? (laughs) I, I had surmised as much previously in my conjectures on this matter. No, of course not. And so God speaks to us in language that we can understand. Which leads us on to the next four points in this first lesson. They're they're principles of interpretation. They're principles that help guard our thoughts, guard our study of the scriptures, and, and help us to better understand what God is communicating in these passages. Because all throughout these lessons, one of the recurring questions that we'll try to raise and answer, and a recurring question that will probably be in your minds, is... When it says that God repented or regretted, and then it says God doesn't repent or doesn't regret, what is it actually communicating? Okay, And so we need to be careful that we answer that question, and it's something that I plan to do, Lord willing, throughout these lessons. And these four principles are designed to help us think it through to be able to answer that question. So then, the first of these principles, four principles of interpretation. The Bible... God's word, this is how God speaks to us, uses the being and nature of God to qualify, control, and protect its own language. The Bible uses the being and nature of God to qualify, control, and protect its own language. In other words, passages that tell us that God is not a man, or like a man, or a son of man control and qualify and protect passages that describe him in the language of a man. And if you think about it, we already do this when God is described in a human form. When it speaks of God's arm not being short or his eyes seeing all things or, or all sorts of, you know, his, his feet moving to and fro or his, his nose when it speaks of his, his wrath because the Hebrews connected the nose with wrath and things like that. When it describes God in a human form, we say, oh, well, we, we know God's not like that, and so I'm not going to think that God actually has you know, hands and feet and arms and such things. But we need to do the same thing, the same exact in- interpretation or hermeneutical tool. We need to apply that same principle to God's when he is, um, excuse me, when he is described in the language of human emotion. And the scriptures themselves do this. We've already seen this, in, especially in the second set of passages, or, and in the third, where the Bible uses the being and nature of God, God's not a man, not like a man, to qualify, control, and protect its own language. And so, if you, if you put those two passages side by side, in First Samuel that I mentioned, God regretted that he made Saul king, God does not have regret, which one do you sort of give priority to? You know, like, wh- which one is controlling which one? And I'm saying the one that describes God's being and nature controls the one that describes his actions in human language. You, You have to operate that way because the scriptures do that. And we have to follow their lead. We have to obey their interpretive tool or their principle. It's God teaching us how to think and speak of him because of who and what God is. Namely God, he cannot undergo the experiences that humans do. Numbers 23 did this as well. God is not a man or a son of man. He does not have the nature 
of man. To be a son of man is to be born from man, to have the nature of man. God does not have that nature. The problem that has to be reconciled is that human speech and language, as we've already said, is, is being used to describe an infinite, eternal, and immutable God. In other words, let's, let's say it's our turn to, in a manner of speaking, let's say it's our turn to write a, a book of the Bible. And we, we, we know God truly. He has revealed himself to us. Okay, how can I communicate God's infinity and majesty to creatures? Well, we've already talked about that problem. You have to use creature language. You have to speak in terms that you and I will understand. There's, there's no other language we know. And so that's why Scripture speaks to us in this way. And you know what? We, we do this ourselves. We use figures of speech. We say things that people know not to take literally. If I say, your nose is growing, Pinocchio, no one's worried, oh my goodness, my nose. No one even thinks that. They know, okay, human noses don't grow like Pinocchio's nose grew. We know that because we know what humans are like. We know human nature, and noses don't grow like that. If I say, oh man, I went skiing last week and I was flying down the mountain, no one says, you had wings? You were flying down the mountain? No, it's a figure of speech. I've described myself in avian terms, in bird language, because I was, it's a metaphor, it's a figure of speech. And we just, we know that. It's just human language. Well, so also God speaks to us in metaphor. God speaks to us in figures of speech. And we, we have to realize that we have to qualify and protect that language the way scripture has taught us to qualify and protect that language. And that's our first interpretive principle. Secondly, the Bible uses physical features and emotional experiences of mankind to describe God. But we must not equate the human language used to describe God with God himself. You see, there's overlap between all these points. But this is another helpful way of saying it. Many authors, uh, for example, if you read the reader or the, the primer, many authors in Christian history have described God speaking to us in human language as the way that a nurse or a mother or a father will speak to their child, will speak to their baby. We, we lisp and we stammer and we, we, we goo-goo and gaga with our children because it's all they can understand, dada and mama and these things. The, their capacity to understand is limited, and so we speak to them according to their limited capacity. So also, God speaks to us in the same way. And if we spoke to the, to the two-year-old and said, now, two-year-old, I want you to understand premise, premise, conclusion, you know, trying to use logic on our two-year-olds, we know that doesn't work. They don't have the capacity to receive well-reasoned arguments and the fullness of our capacity. If, if we spoke at our maximum intelligence level to our children of minimum intelligence, which isn't necessarily their fault, they won't understand us. And so also God speaks in a way that we can understand, but we have to realize that he's not therefore like contained or fully expressed in that language. He's so much more than so far beyond the way that he has described himself to us in the scriptures. And so we really need to avoid two extremes as we do this, because you can end up in two ditches. On the one hand, we can't reduce God to the creaturely language used to describe him. Okay, God rep repented and was grieved in his heart, therefore God experiences those things. That would be one ditch uh, to end up in, or one extreme. God is not like us, and so we know that that's, that's not entirely accurate, or at least it's not 
it, we shouldn't take it as a one-to-one description. It is accurate, but it's not a one-to-one description. But on the other hand, the other ditch that we could fall into is forgetting that those passages are telling us something. You, you can fill it with too much significance and say, a one-to-one, God was sorry in his heart. You can empty of it, empty it of all of its significance and say, well, God doesn't repent, so let's just forget that verse ever happened. You see, there's sort of a balance that we have to find, and these lessons are designed to help us find that balance. In another lesson, we'll dive deeper into that question, but I'll give you a preview just so your minds don't gnaw on it too much. When God speaks of, of himself repenting or relenting, why does it say that? And the connection is in an action. When, when humans repent, we stop doing something and we start doing something else. We stop doing something, we start doing, that's the action that humans take, that humans perform when they repent. Now, along with that, humans experience all kinds of grief and regret and frustration in their repentance. But for God, who decrees all things whatsoever comes to pass, and whose decree cannot be obstructed or inhibited or changed in any way, God decrees to threaten something in order to change the creature, and God decreed also to, to remove that threat, that threat because he changed the creature. It was all foreordained, but from the creature's perspective, they have seen the threat, they have changed, and now they see the smile of God, so to speak, upon them. They're experiencing something in time that was decreed outside of time in eternity. And so God threat, threatening judgment upon Nineveh and then repenting and then not pouring it down judgment on Nineveh for the Ninevites is a sequence of events that appears like a change of mind or repentance. And it's described to us that way, not because God has undergone something or been acted upon, but because God decreed to stop doing something and to start doing something else, which is repentance without passion, without human emotion. So that's, that's the way you have to think these things through, but that was a preview of getting into it in more detail in later Lessons. God decreed to make Saul king. He decreed to remove Saul from the kingship long before the problems that arose with Saul, as though God had not foreseen them when he decrees all things. The third principle. Creature language, the language that you and I speak and understand, creature language is suited to our understanding, but it is not false. Creature language is suited to our understanding, but it is not false. When we realize that the Bible often describes God in a way that has to be qualified because it's creaturely, we might think that that somehow makes it untrue. Well, then why did you say that if it's not really that? You know, you can have that kind of reaction. And we need to be careful about that. Because God speaks to us again in the only way we could possibly understand him in creature language. And just because it's accommodated to us, just because it fits our brains in the way we are, it doesn't make it false. It just makes it accommodated for our capacities. Again, the question is, how else would God make himself known to us if not in a way that we would understand? And so do not think that just because something is accommodated that it's false. You just have to learn better or increase in understanding what these things do truly communicate to us as we just sort of went through the exercise. Okay, how can we say God repents? Well, we can see his decree working out and stopping doing something and starting doing something else while removing all of the human baggage of emotional turmoil that comes with repentance in our cases. And so you see, 
We can no more contain God in our language than you can contain the ocean in a thimble. Our minds are, are that small, if not smaller, relative to God. The finite cannot contain the infinite, the infinite. That's a classic maxim or saying of, of Reformed theologians. The finite, us, the limited, cannot contain within us the unlimited, the infinite, the infinite. And so our minds and our language can never wrap themselves around God and fully express him. But though we cannot know God fully or express him fully, we can know God truly and express him truly when we learn from him who he is truly and learn how to speak like him truly. In other words, when we look at the scriptures and see how God describes himself and how to understand his own language concerning himself. And this has often been... the the difference between knowing something fully and knowing it truly has often been illustrated in a helpful way by thinking about comprehending and apprehending. To comprehend something is like reaching around a tree and touching your fingers on the other side. I have comprehended this tree. I have all of it within my my grip and my grasp. That's comprehending. We cannot comprehend God. But apprehending is putting your hand on a tree far too great and majestic for you to ever reach around and saying, I know this tree truly, even though I do not know it fully. I can apprehend this tree, though I cannot comprehend it. And so also, we can know God truly because he's revealed himself to us truly without knowing God fully because if he did reveal himself fully to us, we would be God. We'd have to be God to receive that knowledge. And then there'd be two gods and it would, we'd divide it by zero again. It just doesn't work. You know, we'd, we've destroyed everything with just something little. Now, I want you to please turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 8. I haven't asked you to turn to passages previously, but I would like you to turn to this one. 1 Kings chapter 8. This is a passage that, at least to my knowledge, I haven't really seen come up in these discussions, but I think it it works very well to explain this point. In this passage, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 27 and 20 to 29, Solomon is leading the people in a dedication service for the temple. The temple has been completed and constructed, and now they're dedicating the temple, um, and Solomon is leading the nation, or at least the city of Jerusalem, in doing so. The instruments and the items of the tabernacle, all of those things uh, commanded in the law are, have been put into the temple, and the Lord has promised that his name will be there. He will manifest his presence in the temple as he did in the tabernacle. And Solomon is praying to God in front of the people. This is what Solomon says, First Kings 8, verses 27 to 29. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? And he's saying that because God promised to, make, to put his name in the temple, that his presence would be manifested there. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. Solomon knows that God cannot be contained fully in the temple. And yet God will be present truly in the temple. So also, and the reason that Solomon knows that is because he has a degree of understanding of the divine nature. We could say he understands divine immensity, 
omnipresence was sometimes called immensity, divine immensity. God is immense. He, he fills all things. He is everywhere. Solomon knows that God cannot therefore be limited and finitely contained within the temple just because he said he would be there with the people. But Solomon knows that truly God will be present with them. He will manifest his glory and his presence in the temple as he did in the tabernacle before. And so also when God speaks to us of himself in the scriptures, his infinite greatness cannot be contained in the language that is used to describe him. The, the scriptures speak to us in, in, in capacity, or according to our capacities in ways that we can understand. So although it's suited to us, it's not false. It's not a full revelation of who God is, but a true revelation of who God is. And that means that it's, it's okay for us to use this language. You might think, well, if, if God doesn't have eyes and hands and, and these things as, as we do, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to speak of him like that. No, that, that would be going too far. God has given us this language for us to use as long as we don't reduce him to that language. And so when we pray, we say, Oh Lord, stretch forth your, your arm. You know, oh Lord, you know, put your hand upon your people. Oh Lord, you know, do not shut your eyes to that which is happening around us. We, we speak in these ways because that's the language God has given to us. We don't need to run from it. We just need to understand it. We shouldn't, shouldn't stop speaking that way. Fourthly and lastly, as we bring this to a conclusion... And this is something we've already been talking about. We need to distinguish between our eternal God in himself and the outworking of his decree in time and space. We need to distinguish between our eternal God in himself and the outworking of his decree in time and space. In so many words, this is the creator-creature distinction. God decreed to create all things, and all creation comes into existence. God's not limited by time. He's eternal. He fills time. He transcends time. He created time. And everything that God has done, is doing, and will do in time is the fulfillment or outworking of his divine decree. And God's decree is simple as he is simple. It's one cause, one, one unchangeable cause with an innumerable multitude of effects. God decrees and all of creation and all of history unfolds from one decree. So it's not God deliberating and choosing things and all, and all this kind of stuff. It's one decree with innumerable effects. And so you can't take those effects that are unfolding in time and space and then think that somehow some kind of succession is happening in God himself as a result. No, because God is eternal and simple in and of himself. And we experience the outworking of his decree. But what we as creatures tend to do is like looking at Nineveh, see God threaten judgment and then remove judgment and think that somehow a change has taken place in God. Well, no, that's the unfolding of his decree. That's not God in and of himself. So what's the conclusion, brothers and sisters, of our four principles of interpretation, which were based on our previous three sets of passages looking in the scriptures? Well, God is infinite, and beyond our comprehension, our full comprehension. But he has made himself known to us by speaking in language that we can truly understand. And we've arrived at this conclusion by looking at three sets of texts in the scriptures, giving them all equal weight, but realizing they have a special relationship where some qualify and protect and control other passages. And so we are careful, therefore, not to make a one-to-one -one connection between creatures and the Creator as we read through the Scriptures, using the, the, the divine nature and understanding who God is as 
understanding it as best as creatures can in order to guard our own understanding of God as he has guarded his own language concerning himself. So we'll delve into these things more in more detail in later lessons, but this is important because it sort of gives us a method. It sort of draws the lines. It establishes a playing field and says, okay, this is how we're operating. This is how we're doing things. This is how it works. And we have, we have tried to the best of our ability to raise this method from the scriptures to say, okay, here's the three sets of passages. Here are principles that we draw from those passages as God teaches us to speak of him as he has spoken of himself. It gives us a theological method. And what it all boils down to is that we need to speak of God in a way that fits with his infinite being and perfection. And we speak of creatures that fits with their finite being and imperfection. And so, if we're going to speak of creatures and their finite being and imperfection, we need to talk about the creature, which is the next lesson. And then we can talk about tomorrow, God's infinity and his perfection, so we know how to speak of him. And then when we know the human nature and the divine nature, we can take the same thing, love, and we're going to pin love on the creature in one way, according to who and what creature is. And then we're going to take love and pin it onto the creator, according to who and what God is. But we haven't done the hard, not the hard work, but the the important work, uh, the spade work of understanding the human nature and understanding the divine nature so we know how to pin or predicate or posit love, something like love, of the creature and of the creator. And so that's what we're going to do next in our next lesson is to speak about impassibility and humanity. And if, if you're like me, these things are deep and profound and at times overwhelming. It, it, you're in the deep end of the pool instantly. <laughs> there's no waiting pool in divine impassibility. As soon as you begin, there's the bottom, you can't even see it. You can't get down to the bottom. It's so far beyond you. It's so far above you. It's so far uh, outside of our capacities. And so these are mysteries. But mystery is a way of revealing something in the scriptures. We know mysteries as something that's hidden so that no one finds it out like a murder mystery or something like that. But mystery in the scriptures is a way of God telling us something that we cannot fully comprehend. And so divine impassibility is a mystery. It's something that transcends our ability to fully understand it. But as James Dolezal quotes Herman Bavink, uh, mysteries are to be adored, not agonized over. And so it's okay that your understanding is limited. It's okay that it's beyond all of us. That's fine. We're creatures. We're not, we're not the creator. That's okay. Just be a creature and adore the creator. Don't agonize over the mystery. Adore it. So as you find yourself swimming in the deep end in the infinite ocean that is God, worship him. And don't try to contain him in your understanding and language. Just adore him as he's revealed himself. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you for making yourself known to us insignificant creatures. We ask that you would please bless us with understanding of your word so that we might know you truly as you have revealed yourself. And we pray that we would worship you with a greater sense of awe and reverence and serve you with a greater sense of awe and reverence as a result of these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.